Welcome back to the Bible Caddy Podcast. I'm William Kane, and I'm joined by my good buddies, multi-time PGA Tour winners, Ben Crane and Webb Simpson. What's up, boys? Hi, hey, boys. Buddy. Nice to see y'all. Ben, where are you dialing in from? Whitefish, Montana. Two weeks with the family here, and uh, it's been absolutely glorious weather, rafting and lake life and all that, so it's been really, really sweet to hang with four kids and my lovely wife true false the humidity is better there than charlotte yeah look i keep looking at nashville and charlotte (laughs) humidity i mean you're in a sweatshirt right now so that says it all right 50 degrees this morning gosh how good is that 50 degrees i would love that yes how is everybody willie where are you bud you home yeah i'm home you home right now i'm in franklin we leave tomorrow to go to family camp um and from there, we're actually That's going awesome. to Montana, where Ben is, to see Victoria's family. So we got a little travel. Oh, nice. Out. Good deal. Yeah. How was the fourth? Fourth was good. We stayed in Charlotte, uh, went to Quail Pool, kind of overtook the pool. We had a watermelon and hot dog eating contest there for the day. And my kids were over half of the kids there, so they won all the prizes. So they were <laughs> super pumped. Love that. Uh, but we had a good day. We had a fun time. Awesome. Well, we're we're a touch late on the Rocket Mortgage, but we got to talk about Ricky Fowler. He gets back in the winter circle after four years. Y'all let us know your thoughts on that. Ricky winning again. I mean, just he's been playing great golf. It's just been so fun to see. Obviously, almost won the U.S. Open. We've been seeing this coming for a while, you know, we knew winning was going to get in his way and, you know, making a clutch putt in the last hole, getting into the playoff, just, you know, Ricky's just golf is better with Ricky Fowler in it. Um, so um, he's done a lot for the game, brought a lot of people to the game. He's a dad now uh, life's different. Um, and so, yeah, just couldn't be, couldn't be more thrilled for him. He's been so generous to so many of us through our charity events and, uh, with his time, he's always been so kind to my kids. So it's it's just, we're just thrilled for him. And yeah, it's just been fun to watch. Yeah, top 10 at uh, M- Colonial, Memorial, almost won the US Open, I think finished fifth, and then another 13th at Travelers. So Ricky was certainly the guy to beat at Rocket Mortgage. And I love what you said, Ben, that winning got in his way, that he just had to keep doing what he's doing and he's bound to win at some point. And he did, uh, Ben, for the listeners, I got a question. So Ricky's got, he had, you know, a nice little four footer outside the hole to get into the playoff clutch birdie. And then he made a nice 12 to 13 footer to win. What are you thinking over a putt to win a tournament? Is it any different from any other putt and give the listeners a little, look into kind of what is most important for Ricky making that putt or for them making a 10 footer on the first hole for par. Yeah, I think you got to go through your process, right? And the most important thing in putting is the read, because if we have a six footer and it's right edge, if we misread it at left edge, then we're basically not going to make it unless we make a horrible stroke. So reading gives you a little forgiveness on either side of the hole. So most important thing is go through your process, get your read the best way you do that. And then, once you do that, it's all about relaxing. I like to focus a little bit on my breathing. I like to step in, um, square myself up. So I align the putter, whether you put the line down on the ball or where you just 
align your body and line the face to your start line. And then from there, you can really just let those things go because those tasks have been done and you switch into the next task, which is to match the speed. So you've got your putter aligned, you've got your read, and now it's all about the speed. And we know that um, speed is best when it's about one to two feet past the hole because people walk around the hole and it gets unpredictable around the hole. So you need to carry a little bit of speed through. You don't want to die the ball at the hole. So carrying a little bit of speed through there. So once you have accomplished the task of your read um, and your alignment, then it's like all about just relaxing and just matching the speed. And I think that gives you the best chance to make that clutch putt, whether it's on the first hole or the last hole of a tournament, you really need to go through that process. I love that. So if a guy, I mean, go ahead, go ahead, Willie. So if a guy's trying to win a club championship or if he's trying to win five bucks from his buddy, he doesn't need to spend more time on that putt than another putt. What, I mean, what do you think? Correct. I mean, the way I look at it, if I go to quail right now, nobody around on the putting green i got a six footer and it's right edge i'm trying to do the exact same thing on the putting green right edge as if i'm trying to win the Wyndham championship with a six footer that's right edge i'm aiming at right edge i'm trying to make a nice stroke and like ben said with good speed so it's no different i mean i think the greats of any sport will tell you that i think steph curry trying to make a free throw in practice this he's thinking the same thing in game seven when they're down one with one second left, he's, he's going through his routine, his breathing, he's trying to execute probably a good shot and that's it. So try to normalize whatever situation you're in and, and tell yourself my task here is to do X, Y, Z, no different than if it didn't matter. And, and you're not, you're not controlling a result, right? You're just doing the best you can, right? We cannot control outcome. We can't control the surface of the green, all these things. So literally you're just, you're doing what you have found has worked the best and it's okay to be nervous. You know, sometimes people play their best golf nervous. So I think that you have to be okay with being a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Very helpful. I need to put that into play next time I put the peg in the ground boys. (laughs) Um, All right. One more question on Ricky before Webb, you know, divvies out his money since he won 500 to a charity of his choice. Um, it had been four years for Ricky. How hard is it to win when you hadn't won in a while? Uh, it's very difficult. I went four and a half years between, uh, win four and five. And, um, you start to feel like you felt before you won on tour. You, you, it seems like that phrase of get the monkey off your back. The monkey comes back and you got to get them off again. Um, but you know, if you're sharp mentally, you got a good team around you reminding you that you are a champion, that you do have what it takes to win, then you, sh- you should stay high level and keep playing. And that's what Ricky did. Uh, Ricky didn't give in. Um, you know, he, he came really close a number of times, but he finally got it done. And I think that's what makes a great champion is not giving up and continuing to get better and continuing to give yourself chances. Um, I had a seven-shot lead going to the final round. That was narrowed down to four shots within three holes of the final day. So um, it was hard. You know, seven's a lot, but four's not at TPC Sawgrass. And I kind of had to weather that storm in the middle of the round, but got it done. And I think it felt great. It felt like a huge relief more than anything. And, you know, we saw that on Ricky's face when he made that putt. A lot of relief, probably a lot of excitement came later on. All right, Weber. Well, where's the money going? You got five hundred dollars of mine and bins to send to a charity of your choice. Where are we sending it, and why? Well, 
let's send it to uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Um, you know, this podcast is built around God's word. Our lives are built around God's word. And Wycliffe, for the listeners who haven't heard of them, they exist to translate the Bible or books of the Bible, get them to the nations, get them to places that have no access. And right now, there are thousands of people groups who don't have access to God's word. Um, and Wycliffe has a ferocious goal to get God's word to all people groups on planet Earth. Uh, so right now, billions of people don't know Jesus. Our our goal is to make a small dent and help that. So thank you, boys. Yeah. And to the listener, if, if any of y'all want to jump in and just join us in some of this giving, it would be awesome if uh, you took a look at some of these places and said, hey, I w- I'd like to get in on that. Um, it's been a joy for us to invest in things that hopefully will outlive us and um, advance God's purposes. And Wycliffe is certainly one of them. So, Amen. All right, fellas. Well, we've been on quite a journey over the last 37 or so episodes. We've been doing our best to look at Jesus from a number of angles. What was he like? What did he do? What did he teach? What did he claim? And then most recently, why did he die? And we saw that even though Jesus was killed by his opponents, it was all according to God's plan, and he was accomplishing uh, some glorious things on our behalf, of, as we've seen in the last few episodes. Um, but in these next couple of episodes, we're coming to a major moment in the life of Jesus, really the, the major hinge point in Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. And it really could not be a bigger deal. So listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 and 19. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul's saying if Jesus wasn't raised, if he's not physically, bodily back from the dead, Christianity is useless. And so today we want to ask, did it really happen? Was Jesus really raised from the dead? And here's how we're going to answer that question. We're going to loosely follow the method of a scholar named Gary Habermas, who uses what he calls the minimal facts argument. So in the 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus, there have been roughly six alternative explanations of what happened to the body of Jesus. Uh, Almost every natural or secular explanation for the resurrection comes back to one of these six. So what we're going to do today is using scripture and using history, we want to put each of those alternative explanations on trial. And we want to show our listeners that the Bible's explanation of Jesus's resurrection really is the best one. And and our hope from this episode is that we would just leave with confidence, real confidence that the Bible is true and Jesus really is alive. He really did rise from the dead. So um, we're going to launch uh, as we always do out of scripture. But before we do, let's Let's just pray for God's help. We need God's help to understand it. So, Ben, will you pray for our time? And then, Weber, you can read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 10. Okay. All right, Lord God, thanks for this day. Thanks for your love and care. And, Lord, um, thanks for all the encouragement you brought through doing this podcast uh, to my soul. And, Lord, um, help us as we look steadily into your word that you would show us um, just the greatness of your glory, goodness, um, and that why the resurrection, um, everything hinges upon it. So Lord, um, just encourage us through your spirit, bless us 
um, as we are in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Weber, can you read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 10 for us? You got it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Okay, so here is Paul's explanation of what happened with Jesus Christ. He died according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. And then he tells us about these post-resurrection appearances. So what are some observations that you guys make in these few verses? What do you see in there? He appears to Peter in the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time who are still alive. Like he's saying like, Hey guys, um, he really did appear. And if you want, um, to check this, you can go to, there's some of these people are still alive today. Go ask them. They saw him. Yes, Ben. I, I love what you just said. It's so true. Uh, and it's one of the cool things about Christianity It's quick aside that it has what we call testable, miraculous claims. There are, um, real things that the biblical writers will point to that you can go see for yourself, right? And other religions don't have this. Like, for example, if you take Mormonism, Joseph Smith receives these tablets and then he loses them. And all the convenient. claims... Yeah, very convenient. Yeah, or or Muhammad has these visions from Allah and it's just him. There's nobody else involved. But in Christianity, what Paul's saying to these you know Christians in Corinth is, hey, halfway around the Mediterranean world in Jerusalem, there's over 500 people who saw Jesus alive and a lot of them are still living. Go talk to mm-hmm. them. Uh-huh. So it's, it's really neat. Um, yes. Okay. So back to our topic for today. Um, Jesus dies, he rises, and then he has all these post-resurrection appearances. Now, if you read this kind of paragraph and you take it at face value, how does it seem to you? Like just react to it. It seems like, how do you argue it? He's given us multiple people and an order in which Jesus appeared, first to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to James, then he appeared to me. He's very specific. If if Paul had just said he appeared to a bunch of people, you just got to take my word for it, it'd have been hard to believe. But he's very specific on how and when he came and appeared. Yes. Oh, and by the way, like Ben said, you don't believe me? Go ask them. Some of them are still alive. You can go ask them and and you know see what they say. No doubt. And if if you're coming from like a secular worldview or a materialistic worldview, let's just admit this sounds totally crazy. It sounds wild. It sounds supernatural. It sounds impossible that a man would come back from the dead never to die yes. again. Okay. Yep. And because it's hard to believe if you're coming from that worldview in the last 2000 years, 
there have been a number of alternative views that have been put forward to explain what happened to Jesus's body. Okay. And so what we want to do is we want to just quickly understand the six most popular, almost everything that's been put forward in the last 2000 years comes back to these six views. Um, but what we're going to see today is when you look at the basic facts surrounding the events at the end of the life of Jesus, um, they can all be pretty easily disproven. So we're going to put these alternative views on trial. I think we'll have fun doing it. The first alternative theory or natural theory of the resurrection is what we call the swoon theory. Ben, tell, tell our listeners about the swoon theory. So this theory puts the, puts forward the explanation that Jesus never really died, but that he was just badly wounded and that he went into the tomb and wounded. He was wounded alive, but he emerged on the third day because he never really um, died completely. Yeah. And then he comes back and he convinces everybody that he's alive. Okay. So that's the swoon theory. We're going to see that that's, you know, it's not going to really hold, hold up. Um, the next popular theory is the wrong tomb theory. Weber, tell us about that. Yep. It, it's, it is what it sounds like. Uh, it says that the disciples were just mixed up. They went to the wrong tomb and found it empty. Okay. Wrong tomb. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, we're going to see that this is not going to work either. Uh, the third popular theory uh, is the hallucination theory. So what's this one, Ben? It's just that people, everyone was just hallucinating that um, this guy, you know, really appeared to the people after he died. Yep. So mass hallucination by lots of people at lots of places at lots of times. Um, okay, we got the stolen body theory. Weber, what's the stolen body theory? Uh, this is the earliest explanation put forward by the opponents of Christianity, and it says that the disciples stole the body, uh, and later explanations have put forward that the Jews or Romans could have stolen the body as well. Okay. So somebody stole the body. That makes sense of what happened to it. And then uh, two more. Uh, the spiritual resurrection theory. What's that, Ben? This is probably the most popular theory. It says the exclamation um, says that these liberal theologians that suggest that Jesus never really physically um, rose from the dead. It was just a spiritual resurrection um, that his spirit went to be with the Lord, but he was never really physically raised from the dead. Okay, good. Yep. And then the final one and probably the most popular one today is the explanation that it's just a legend. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It suggests that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead but that the legend around Jesus slowly grew over long periods of time to become what it is today. So nearly every popular modern explanation of the resurrection of Jesus comes back to one of these six. Um, but all of these explanations can be easily disproven by six historical facts that are hinted at in our passage, facts that are actually accepted by Christian and non-Christian scholar alike. And so let's look at some of these basic facts. This is our evidence. And then we're going to put these other views on trial and hopefully conclude that the Christian explanation is the best one. Okay, so the first fact is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, what's Paul tell us in verse 3 of our passage? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, so we know from all four Gospels that Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, it's widely attested to in the historical creeds of the church. Um, but here's what I want our listeners to hear, especially if you're unlanded about this stuff. Even secular history bears witness to this. So 
Um, Flavius Josephus was the most prolific Jewish historian of the first century. He's not a believer. And listen to what he says about Jesus. He says, about this time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified. Okay, so he validates the historicity that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. Okay, Mm -hmm. one more quote for you. Tacitus, who is probably the greatest Roman historian of the second half of the first century, says this, Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So according to multiple unbiased first century scholars and historians, how did Jesus die? Crucifixion. Yes. Okay, so already the swoon theory that Jesus never really died. How's it looking? Not very good. <laughs> Not very good. The Romans were experts in killing people in the most gruesome way to make a point. So if they're putting Jesus on a cross, they're doing it to kill him. Yes. Yep. Yep. 100%. Yep. So that's our first basic fact uh, attested to by Christian and non-Christian alike. Jesus died by crucifixion. Okay. First piece of evidence. Second fact. On the third day after Jesus' death, the tomb of Jesus was empty. Okay, so quickly, the biblical explanation and verses three and four of our passage, what is it? For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, so that's that's the Bible's claim. Um, but how can this be validated historically? Why can we be confident that the tomb was empty. And let me give you guys a hint. Think about what the disciples started doing very shortly after the resurrection. They started preaching. Um, like, first of all, they were, they were kind of cowards um, when he was being crucified and they all kind of scattered and were fearful and ran away. And then all of a sudden they were like empowered. Um, and we know through scriptures by the Holy spirit. Right. And so, they were empowered to go and they started preaching. Um, and that's what a lot of acts tells us that, um, and people started believing. Yes. Good. And let's just dig into that exact thing a little bit more. Where are they preaching and what are they preaching? They're preaching there in Jerusalem. Like they're not far from where he was just crucified. So these, so I guess they're preaching to the people, the very people that just crucified him, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do. And yet they were just cowards days earlier, and now they're preaching to the very people who could crucify them. So it's a risky, dangerous thing. Yes. And and one of you guys read that those words from that very first sermon. So Acts 2, 22 to 24, it's just a small little snippet. But Peter is in Jerusalem 50 days a- after the resurrection. And what does he say in those verses? Look at the content of his preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Yes. So within... Just a few days of the death of Jesus, these guys are preaching about the resurrection of Jesus to the very people who killed him. 
And notice that the authorities in the book of Acts, they never deny the claim. Right. Um, in fact, the book of Matthew tells us that they tried to cover it up because the tomb was empty, right? If the tomb was had a body in it, they could have easily put an end to this movement, right? By just opening the tomb, showing the dead body, but they never do it. And they never deny it because the tomb is empty. There's one more clear reason we can trust the tomb is empty. Okay. Um, think back to the resurrection accounts in the gospel. Who in each of the gospels, who are the first to discover the empty tomb? Women. The women who were not credible in a court of law. Um, so if you were making up a story, you would definitely use men to discover the body, but it's just a historical fact that the women were the first to discover that the tomb was empty. Yes. If I'm making this thing up, I am not including that detail. <laughs> right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, but both the preaching of the disciples in Jerusalem and the women being first at the tomb, they show us that the evidence points to an empty tomb. Okay. It's never denied by the religious leaders. Uh, so that's our f- second fact. Regardless of what happened to the body, there was an empty tomb. So we've got a crucified Jesus. We've got an empty tomb. Here's the third fact. And we've already, Ben's already helped us with this one. There was a huge change in the 11 disciples. Mm-hmm. So that not only is their life so radically transformed in the short term, even in the end, they're all either killed or exiled for their allegiance to Jesus. Um, so Ben already reminded us that on the night of the betrayal, we see guys who are timid. Peter is mm-hmm. denying. They all run away. And within a month and a half, how would you describe these same guys? Like unbelievably bold, full of courage, like the opposite of the way they were uh, just a few weeks prior. Yes. Okay, so a couple months after, Peter and John are incarcerated in Jerusalem for preaching about Jesus. They put them in jail. Okay, and then when they uh, go to release them, Peter addresses the very same religious leaders who killed Jesus, the same ones we saw a few weeks ago, Annas and Caiaphas and those guys. And Weber, read what Peter says to them in Acts 4, 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, so just think about that. I mean, full send. Buddy. Full send. Full send to the guys who could kill him. Right. To the guys and that yet, he was afraid of. A few weeks prior, of. he denied who Jesus was to a little girl who meant nothing. Yes. <laughs> Who could do nothing to him? That's such a good point. And now here he is making eye contact with these guys, so bold, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and, and these guys did not just start strong. They finished strong. According to Scripture, you can see this in Acts 7, Acts 12, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Um, we know it through church history. We even know it through secular history. All 11 disciples were either martyred for their faith in Christ or ter- tortured and exiled late in their life. And our passage today gives us the explanation for their boldness. What would verse 5 say? After Jesus died and rose, what did he do? And it says, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Yes. 
So these guys saw Jesus alive, and that's the biblical explanation for their boldness and their, their life change, even in the face of death. Um, so that's our third fact. Whether you accept the biblical explanation or not, there's a huge change in the 11 disciples. And in the end, they're either all killed or exiled for their allegiance to Jesus. So we've got a crucified Messiah, we've got an empty tomb, and we've got a change in the disciples. Everybody can agree on that, Christian or non-Christian. Fourth fact, we've got the leadership of James, the brother of Jesus. So what do we know about Jesus' half-brother James while Jesus was alive? Well, he we know that he didn't really believe in him, and we know that through John 7, uh, 2 through 5. Now the Jews, the Feast of Booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Okay, so that last little sentence is where we want to just hone in on James. Not even his brothers believed in him. Right? And you can't really blame him. I mean, if your brother was claiming to be the Christ, the son of God. How do you think you react? Yeah, whatever. I saw you dumping your diaper when you were little. Like <laughs> You're just like us, bud. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I did not think that phrase would be used on the podcast today. Dumping diaper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so James is a skeptic before Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, yeah. Any idea the next time we see James in the Bible? Is it when he writes the book of James? Okay, he does write the book he's, of James. Good. He's preaching, right? Okay, he's he's not necessarily preaching, but we see him in Acts chapter 15. There's a huge meeting in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council, and they're having this discussion about um, uh, really what from the Jewish law the Gentiles need to take into their Christianity. So it's it's a huge first century issue. And you know who the loudest voice in the room is? Hmm. James. James. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about that. Like this was home base for many of the apostles. And James is the heavy in the room. Mm. And listen to the biblical explanation for it. It's the best explanation, I think. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7? After the death and resurrection of Jesus, what happens? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Then he appeared to James. He appeared to James. So you want to know why James Uh goes from a skeptic to a leader? The biblical explanation is his brother met him after the resurrection. That's right. Hmm. And it's probably what it would take if it was your bro. Um, yeah. And you see and you see James when he writes his um, his his letter, he says he labels himself as James servant. He doesn't claim to be the half brother of Jesus. He says slave servant of the mm-hmm. Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He calls him Lord and that he's his servant. So that's just like a massive change in our boy. Massive change. And here's the deal, guys. Y'all have heard this said before. Plenty of people have died for something that they believe in, something that they don't know is a lie, like 9-11. These guys, these terrorists thought that they were dying for something that they would get in the afterlife. But no one, no one's going to die for something that they know is a lie. 
right? That's the difference. That's the big difference. Because a lot of skeptics would be like, well, there's plenty of people from other religions who would be martyrs, but no one's going to be a martyr if they know what they're being martyred for is a lie, right? So I think that's a big distinguished difference here in the disciples. Huge. Yep. Okay, so we've got a crucified Messiah. We've got an empty tomb. We've got a major change in the disciples, and we've got James going from a skeptic to a leader. These are all basic facts, okay, basic evidence. Okay, next fact, two more, uh, is the conversion of Paul. So, fellas, what do we know about Paul before he met Jesus? He was there at the first execution of the first Christian, Stephen. And so we know that he was ravaging the church and that he was um, he, he was doing everything he could to extinguish um, people's faith in, in Jesus. Yes. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. That's exactly right. Um, he's incredibly hostile to to Christ and to Christians. And he says it in verse nine. What's he say in verse nine of our passage today? He said, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted um, the church of God. Yeah. So he admits his persecution, his hatred for the church. Um, But not long after this, what happens to our boy, Paul? How would you describe him? He has a encounter with the risen Lord and his whole life completely, completely changes. He goes from hating Christians, persecuting them, witnessing the killing of Stephen to then literally writing half of our New Testament and becoming the most prolific um, evangelist um, that we've seen. Yep. hundred percent. I mean, has there been a more fruitful Christian missionary on planet earth than the apostle Paul? <laughs> no, he went from leader respected all the accolades to sitting in his own feces in prison because he was preaching about Jesus. Yes. Yes. So willing to suffer for the sake of the risen Lord Jesus um, and to serve the good of his people. So there is a huge change. And what's his own explanation for it in first Corinthians 15, eight, Jesus appeared to him. Yep. That's right. Last he, of all, he had a real encounter with Jesus. Yep. He appeared also to me, Paul says. Okay, so whether that's the right explanation or not, again, to the listener, there is a fact that there was a man named Paul, and he went from a terrorist to a missionary. And we got to contend with that fact. Okay, And then last fact, and I'll just summarize it quickly, is the global spread of Christianity. So Acts 1.15 tells us that um, at the time of the ascension of Jesus, there are about 120 Christians. Well, within one generation— there are hundreds of thousands of Christians. Within a few generations, there are millions of Christians. By 325 AD, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. In 476, when Rome falls, Christianity continues to spread. It's not hindered by the downfall of government. And now today, there are over 2 billion Christians on planet Earth. And so... And the message all along has been the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So those are basic facts, okay? We've got a crucified Messiah. We've got an empty tomb. We've got a major change in disciples that go from cowards to being willing to die. We've got a guy named James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic, and he turns into a devout follower and leader in Christianity. we got a guy named Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, who becomes its greatest missionary— And then we've got 
to contend with the reality of the global spread of Christianity. So those are facts that Christian and non-Christian alike can accept. Now, let's apply those facts to these alternative views, and let's see, see if they hold up. Okay, so the swoon theory, the theory that Jesus never really died. He was only badly wounded. Uh, maybe that makes sense of the empty tomb. Um, of the basic facts above, of our evidence, which of them easily disprove this? The Romans were killers. They were trained killers, and they don't put someone on a cross <clears throat> to wound them. They were there to kill him. Yep. So that, that theory just, Jesus is not half dead. I mean, there's so many accounts of non-believers witnessing the death of Jesus Christ. Yep. Any other facts fit in there? Yeah. James and Paul, I mean, their transformation doesn't fit in with this theory at all. Um, so seems like to me the swoon theory doesn't hold up in court at all. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Especially when you add in those secular non-Christian scholars saying he died by crucifixion. You know? Right. <laughs> this just, this doesn't work. And there is, is a half dead Jesus really going to convince all these disciples to give their life away for him? Right. Probably not. So we can, we can slash the swoon theory. All right. The wrong tomb theory, the disciples just went to the wrong tomb. Uh, which of our facts uh, throw this one in the trash? One of the facts is that um, this is the busiest time of the year where you have thousands of people all around town and um, the fact that there's a, a mix-up of this magnitude, with this, this is the biggest thing going on, it's just really not likely. Yeah, not likely at all. Completely agree. Yeah, and the the mission of the disciples could have been stopped as soon as the uh, religious leaders, if they could have correctly identified the tomb and the body, all they had to do was say, look, your message is in vain because here's his body. And that would have been in their best interest to get that body as quickly as possible uh, to shut up the disciples, but they, they couldn't get it. They didn't have it. He had risen. Yeah, exactly. And just, and just obviously the disciples, like we've talked about, their boldness and their life transformation just doesn't fit with this either. Yeah. It, I think if the tomb had been empty and they had never witnessed Jesus, they would have been confused, but they would mm -hmm. never have been bold. Right. It took seeing him, touching him, feeling him to say, oh, we're going to give our life for this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and obviously the wrong tomb theory does nothing with James and Paul, right? Right. Doesn't explain their turnaround. Okay. So we can, yep. we can nix the wrong tomb theory. All right. What about the hallucination theory that uh, everybody hallucinated? The women, the disciples, the 500, James, Paul, the guys on the road to Emmaus, they all hallucinated. Uh, how do I mean, the, I, I love the explanation that, that goes something like this, that, you know, the chances that we all go home, you know, tonight and go to sleep and have a dream is very likely. The chances of hundreds of people all going home and having the exact same dream and coming back and witnessing it the exact same way, it's never happened before. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And this is modern science can help us here too. There's no account in modern science of a mass hallucination of this magnitude by this many people in this many places at this many times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So that doesn't seem to hold water. Um, all right. What about the stolen body theory? Weber got us 
down the road here very helpfully. Let's start with the disciples. How do we know for sure the disciples did not steal the body? Well, they the the first fact I think is that they wouldn't have given their life they wouldn't have had their lives transformed and then died for Jesus if they had simply stolen the body to prove a point. Nobody's going to do that. Yes. Let alone 11 of them or 10 of them. Yes. Um and I mean also the again it was in the best interests of the religious leaders to have that that tomb guarded as tightly as possible. So nobody's getting in there to even steal it in the first place. Correct. Yeah, you made the great point earlier. Will people die for a lie? Yes. Will they die for something they know for a fact is a lie? Probably not, and certainly not 100% of them. And right. that's what we see all the disciples doing. They live a life of right. suffering, and then they're killed. Um, mm-hmm. Willingly. Willingly. Joyfully, yep. Um, and then what about the Jews or the Romans? Did they steal the body? Do we know? Why or why not? They, were, they weren't trying to create a bigger problem for themselves. So if they had stolen the body, then all of a sudden they, they created, you know, this religion on their own, which they never would have done. They were trying to extinguish this from the beginning. That's why they killed him. Yes. And, and if they had done that and the problem had gotten big and they wanted to end this new religion, what would they have done? Produce the body. Produce the body. Yeah, just, Here it, it is. is dead. That's right. Okay. So we know the stolen body theory doesn't work. Okay, what about this spiritual resurrection theory, right? A lot of churches today, I'm just going to shoot straight, uh, a lot of the mainline churches are drifting away from historical Christianity. It's very concerning, okay? And a lot of these churches hold to the spiritual resurrection theory, that Jesus didn't really rise physically or bodily. It was just a spiritual resurrection. Which of the facts disprove this theory? Well, the tomb was empty. Right. So let's just start with that. <laughs> if it's a spiritual resurrection, what's in the yeah, tomb? His body. And if his body wasn't there. So it was a physical raising from the dead. Right. If we have a spiritual resurrection, we don't have a missing body. Yeah. Not to mention that any early, uh, you know, um, kind of turn of the first century leader, religious leader, they're important. Their tomb's going to be enshrined. Okay. There's yep. going to be um, memorial set up to where it's clearly the tomb of this great leader that we admire and revere. Um, yep. uh, ben and I got to go to Israel. And we saw the tomb of David still there. Okay. That would have certainly been done with Jesus Christ had he been dead and stayed dead. But that never happened there because there's an empty tomb. So the spiritual resurrection theory is disproven by that simple fact. We got an empty tomb. Um, what about with the disciples, James and Paul? Does it make sense to those guys? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they said that they saw him and they touched him. And then you see their, how they were emboldened in their mission. So it's just, again, they, this would not happen um, if this was a spiritual resurrection, yes, not a, not a bodily one. Yes, exactly. You see that so clearly in John's writings, especially that we were eyewitnesses that we saw him, that we touched him, that we felt him. And that was what was, um, leading them on in their mission. Okay. And then the last one, it was a legend. This is popular today. It's made up. Um, what does this theory fail to do altogether? Well, it throws out all the facts. It's just a 
cheap denial, uh, but it doesn't go face to face with the evidence, with the facts. Um, there was a crucified Jesus. There was an empty tomb. The disciples had radical transformations and all died bearing witness to a resurrected Jesus. Paul went from persecutor of the church to the church's greatest missionary. James went from a profound skeptic to a prolific leader. And finally, the church has grown to over 2 billion people in just 2,000 years. Yeah. And this theory just doesn't deal with any of those realities. Just ignores them. Says it's a legend. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So I think the most naive thing people can say and the most unintelligent is that it's just a legend. Yeah. You can't say that. Right. And be intellectually honest. Correct. Yeah. All right, boys. So when we look at the basic facts that we've gone over and over in this episode, um, and we've looked at these potential alternative theories, at the end of the day, what is the best explanation? That Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus is alive Mm -hmm. and that he really is the Lord and he really is who he said he was. Because not only do we have these accounts, but we also have um, the Old Testament um, preparing us and predicting that it would happen. Correct. And you have Jesus calling a shot. Um, and like, here's something cool. I just, I love what we've gotten to do the last, whatever, 38 weeks or so. Like we've seen in Jesus, this unbelievable person Mm -hmm. with power and might and compassion and care, making huge claims and calling his shots. And if he really is who he says he is, what do you think he would do after he died? Wouldn't he rise again? Wouldn't he conquer death if he really is who he says he is? Like 100%. If he is God come to earth, of course death could not hold him. Yep. And mm-hmm. we see him conquering death here. And and the cool thing is like the Lord has graciously giving us scripture, which is enough. Okay, guys, scripture yep. is the highest authority and that is where we put our trust. But even for the kind of intellectual skeptic or the person who might struggle with doubt, the Lord has been so kind to give us reason and Mm -hmm. to see that there is great evidence that Jesus really is who he says he is. And he really did what he said he was going to do conquer death. So before we, before we sign off, you boys react to this, you know, what of this means the most to you? How do you react to it? It's just so great to see in this form, um, the best arguments against, um, Jesus rising from the dead. And it's just like, none of them hold weight. I mean, they can be literally disproved, uh, with scripture. Um, if you just look around and, you know, like we say, the, the, the greater you mine in scripture, the deeper you mine in scripture, the greater the treasure. And, and so it's just fun just to, to be able to discount these um, thanks for your work on just showing us um, these theories, because it just gives you more joy and more um, just respect um, that your Bible's reliable. Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to add for the listeners, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, there was a journalist by the name of Lee Strobel and he, he set out on a personal mission to disprove uh, Jesus and his claims and the resurrection. Well, he was not a believer and he had a lot of doubts and thought it was intellectual suicide to believe in these things, believe in the resurrection. 
Um, and upon his project, he ended up becoming a believer based on the overwhelming evidence that there is that we've talked about today for a resurrected Christ. So check it out. Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. Uh, if you want more reading on this great, great book. Yes. Good, good shout out right there. And also want to mention, uh, yeah, thanks to Strobel for his work, Gary Habermas for his work and, uh, a ministry that we all three love search ministries has consolidated some of these things that made this easier to organize and present. So thanks to all of them for helping us with this. Um, and thank you for listening to the Bible Caddy podcast. If you've got questions about Jesus, we really would love to hear from you. You can email us at biblecaddy at gmail.com. You can follow us on social media under the handle at Bible Caddy. And we will be back next week talking with the different implications of this resurrection, what it means and what it means for us. Until then, let's get into the Word and let the Word get into us.